I have a book in my office called The Christian Handbook. Um, it is a, a tongue-in-cheek look at church life. It has simple things like how to find a church or how to get to know your pastor, how to listen to a sermon. Uh, it has uh, how to listen to God's voice, how to commit your way to the Lord, um, how to identify someone filled with the Holy Spirit, how to read the Bible. It's, it's actually got useful pointers in it, but it's done in a funny way. So I thought we'd begin with how to stay alert in church right now. Some of this might be uh, uh, information that's less useful, like the first of eight points here. It says, get adequate sleep. Late Saturday nights are Sunday morning's worst enemy, it says. Resolve to turn in earlier. A good night's sleep on Friday night is equally important to waking rested on Sunday as sleep debt builds over time. Number two, drink plenty of water, though not too much. It is easier to remain alert when you are well hydrated. Consider keeping a small bottle of water with you during worship. One quick bathroom break is considered permissible. Two or more are bad form. <laughs> Number three, eat a high-protein breakfast. Foods high in carbohydrates force your body to metabolize them into sugars, which can make you drowsy. If your diet allows, eat foods high in protein instead, such as scrambled eggs with bacon. So you heard it here, eat bacon before church. <laughs> Number four, and probably one of the most important in my mind, is arrive early and find the coffee pot. If you don't drink coffee, consider a caffeinated soda. Number five, focus on your posture. Sit up straight with your feet planted firmly on the floor. Avoid slouching as this encourages sleepiness. Good posture will promote an alert bearing and assist in paying attention so you'll get more out of worship. And there is a diagram right here on how to sit at a 90-degree angle. <laughs> Number six, if you have difficulty focusing on the service, divert your attention. Occupy your mind, not your hands. Look around the worship space for visual stimuli. Keep your mind active in this way while continuing to listen. Number seven, Stay alert by flexing muscle groups in a pattern. <laughs> Clench your toes and feet. Flex your calf muscles, thighs, gluteus, abdomen, hands, arms, chest, and shoulders. Repeat. Avoid shaking, rocking, or other movements that attract undue attention. And number eight, finally, if all else fails, consider pinching yourself. <laughs> Try not to cry out in pain as you do it, it says. So... And there's a diagram on how to pinch yourself during worship. So. I've been to an awful lot of worship services over the years. I've uh, attended a lot of churches, both as a guest and as a regular attender, big and small, mega and tiny. Um, I've been to worship services that were overhyped, um, uh, where they tried to make it so epic every week. Um, and I've been to worship services that were incredibly boring. And then I've been to the ones right in the middle, where the Spirit uh, is there. And you can, you can sense that. And people are gathered in the Spirit and in truth. And we should point out this morning, we're going we're gonna to look in Second Peter in just a little bit, but we should uh, just be clear that it's virtually a sin to bore people with the gospel. Uh, really, that's, that's not our job. This is the most remarkable thing to happen to humanity. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be bored by this message, and we shouldn't bore people with the message of Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Peter 3, 8 through 15 is what we're going to look at. And, and you can follow along. We're just in 2 Peter 3 today. But I, but I want to ask the question as you're finding it, which is, you know, you're here now. And, and like I said, I've been to church worship services where it's overhyped and where it's boring. We should recognize that it's the, it's the discipline of going and going and going and being part of a body of believers and letting the word wash over you week in and week out that actually changes us. But we do need to ask the question when we come to worship and when we crack open God's word, do you want to be changed this morning? As we hear the good news, do you want something to change in you because you were here and heard God's word? Not my words, but you heard God's word. Do you want to be changed today because you heard God's good news? So let's go to first or second Peter it's three. We'll read 8 through 15, and we'll make some heads or tails of a couple of these passages. And I will point out, there's an awful lot you could do with this passage, and we're not. We're only going to do something with it, not everything you can do with it. There are some interesting translation uh, questions in it. There are some interesting, it's a, it's a passage uh, that has a lot to do with the end, uh, and we're going to do a little bit with that. It's a passage that uh, gets brought in when it's a conversation about free will. We're not going to do anything with that this morning. But let's go starting at verse 8. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. In this season of Advent that we're in, where we look back to the first Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, it's important to mark what happened very much. And we, we were talking about uh, last week and this week that our focus is not really just going to be on what happened. Something very significant happened, and it really did occur. Jesus Christ came, God in a human body, then died for you and me to save us. That's part of what's in view today. But very importantly, we're in between the time of the first advent of Jesus coming and doing that and the second advent when the day of the Lord occurs, the final judgment occurs, and God's kingdom is fully and complete. Full and complete and here. And so we're in this world where Peter gives us sort of a a prophetic word is what he gives us. Not simply here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen, and here's what your response should be to what's going to happen. 
And when, we're, when we kind of are confronted with that, I find that people can go different directions with the prophetic word, especially when it comes to the end. They can either wholly and entirely focus on it, probably a little too much sometimes, or they can completely dismiss it and say it's always going to be tomorrow, not today. But I was struck as I was studying the passage this week, Warren Wearsby points out in commenting on this, he says, prophetic teaching must not lull us to sleep. It must awaken us to live godly lives and to seek to win the lost. So church, we're going to wake up this morning. All right? Are you with me? Now let's review what God has been up to all throughout Scripture. And this includes you and me even today. God's plan through Scripture, this, this grand narrative that weaves through the whole text is God's great rescue operation for creation. That's what's going on throughout Scripture. And we should recognize some truths about that. The first is that God's glory is revealed as he rescues his creation. And we've defined glory through this series. Uh, Glory is God's character on display. That's where somehow we can tangibly or visibly see who God is. God's glory is revealed in that rescue process. The second truth we should recognize is that God does not desire that his beloved creation would be destroyed or would perish, but would in fact be saved. That's God's goal. Peter's even telling us that this morning. The third truth to recognize is that the more God changes us, that is, makes us holy, the more we may draw others closer to God. At least that opportunity is open at that point. And hopefully we take it. Then we should also recognize that being made holy is not easy. It's in fact incredibly difficult sometimes. But it will make you who God intended you to be. Those are the truths we should keep in mind this morning. And and we should recognize something about ourselves in, in the process of that. I'll tell you a story to kind of illustrate this. Uh, when I was in college, I went to North Park University, or graduated from there, and uh, I was going to be a music major, percussion performance. Uh, I switched to theology because that makes more money. Not really at all. <laughs> um, I just, I really enjoyed theology. I enjoyed music, but it, you know, just wasn't what I decided to do. Um, but I still played uh, on campus uh, regularly. I, I ended up being the on-call timpanist, so kettle drums, timpani, those big copper things. In, in the orchestra primarily, um, and it was, a, it was something I'd done a little bit of, but I was the only one doing it now, and I was the one on campus. It was really a load of fun to do, but it was a real challenge for me. Um, it was a completely new sort of uh, way of drumming. And, and in my first year there at the school, we had an orchestra director who was good, and he obviously knew his discipline very well, but he didn't really challenge us uh, all that much. And the second year I was there, we got a new director who thought the timpani was the pinnacle instrument of the orchestra. He was European, and he said, it is in Europe, so it ought to be here, and I agreed with him. And, and uh, he pushed me so hard, really hard, frustratingly hard at times. We had a lot of one-on-one conversations. We had a lot of, uh, we frustrated each other mutually at times. But he saw where I was, and he saw where I could be. And he said, I know you've got this potential, and I want you to get there. His intent was incredibly good, and it was a frustrating process, but by the end of my time playing with him, I I appreciated how he pushed me, and I felt really good about what I had achieved because he pushed me so hard. And so we should recognize, as we're looking at at the second advent and the holiness that we're called to, 
when we say yes to Jesus Christ, and the shaping that God's going to do in us, we should not question God's intent in the process, but we do need to question our intent in the process. Am I really in for it? Am I really in it for what God wants here? Am I really one who wants to be made holy? Because it's going to be worth it in the end. So let's go to 2 Peter 3.1, which we didn't actually read yet this morning, but it kind of frames what Peter's up to here. Peter says, Dear friends, he's writing to the church. He's writing to a scattered grouping of churches, really. He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Peter's writing to the churches, a number of them in what would be modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and, and he's running to these churches, and within these churches there are scoffers, he'll refer to, uh, who are saying, well, Jesus probably isn't going to come back, or is this really the way we're supposed to act, that sort of thing. Peter says, no, I want you to listen up, church. And so that, that word comes to us today. We need to listen up, church. Peter says, I'm calling you to remind you to return to wholesome thinking. Some of you have sincere minds. And the best translation of those two phrases is somewhere in between. Uh, not because the Greek has trouble, but because the, he's talking about your whole self. Not just the thinking apparatus that's in your mind. He says, all of you needs to be aimed in a Godward direction in everything that you do, in all ways. That's what frames this whole thing. Now... What Peter doesn't mean, as he gives us this passage of Scripture and, and his whole thought pattern, he doesn't mean this, that, that if you do right, you're saved. It's not just a good works thing that he's talking about when he says wholesome thinking or sincere minds. So you can imagine every St. Peter joke that you know when somebody comes to the pearly gates and they say, why should I let you in? Peter does. And they have to list off their good works or whatever. They're hilarious jokes. They're all theologically way off the mark because that's not how it works. We're, we're not going to get into God's presence because we're so good because let's just uh, make it real here. We're not. You and I aren't. We can't be that good. The other thing Peter isn't saying, which is just a step removed from this, is that good uh, is to be a Christian means just good morals, that that's the long and short of the whole thing. And sometimes that's, both of these are kind of uh, what we've kind of come to at least believe culturally all too often, that it's just how much good you do. It still persists out there in our culture. If you ask people what Christianity is, um, somehow that's what it amounts to. Or somebody will say, well, it's just about good morals. Well, no, those aren't, those, the good morals should be the byproduct of the Christian life, not the very goal of the Christian life. This wholesome thinking and the sincere minds is really holiness is what's being talked about here. That's Peter's point in both of his letters. And that is the, the ultimate goal of holiness is not simply to do right, but to be right with God, communion with God, with the one who is holy. That's the point and the purpose. And so the point that we've had over the last uh, week and this week and through Advent is this, that as the church, God's people, God's people are to be made holy. Right? We're supposed to be right with God so that we reveal God's glory to everybody else and can bring them into that holiness too. That's who we're supposed to be, is holy people gathered together and bringing others into that holiness, revealing who God is so people see that and they want in. They want to be made holy. More to the point, this week then, we could say that holiness is simply to want what God wants and live accordingly. 
See, that's where you can see morality and good works is the byproduct of that. It's first and foremost to have the mind of God and to understand God's mind and follow through and be with him. Peter talks in, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand... That's verse 8. Verse 9 is, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When I was in seventh grade, I went to East High School over there because they had the junior high in there at the same time. It was terrifying as a seventh grader to walk into that place. But I remember uh, the first week of, of school um, in the dungeons of East High, way in the basement where they put the seventh graders back then. Um, you had these combinations on the lockers, which was a new thing, right, for junior hires. And you had, uh, you had to go to your class, different classes. You didn't get in a line and go, right? So you have all these transitions that a seventh grader or now a sixth grader goes through when they move on. And I remember the first week of school, I was having trouble with that combination lock for whatever reason. The first bell had rung. We were in between classes. I'm still working on that combination lock to switch books or whatever it was I was trying to do. And the second bell went off and I was late. Now, I am, I, I don't like being late. So, and especially as a seventh grader, I didn't tolerate this very well. So this made me very anxious. And I knew, uh, I finally got it open about 10 seconds after the bell, switched the books. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be late though. It was around the corner, but still, 45 seconds late or something like that. Everybody's already in their seats. That You have to walk through the front of the class by the teacher's desk. And the words that he said are funny now, but they weren't to my seventh grade self at the time, where he just looked at me in a joking tone, and he said, you need a Mickey Mouse watch. And that was it. And I went red-faced to my desk and sat down in embarrassment. If we're going to be holy... I mean, the first step is salvation. We'll talk about the repentance piece in a moment. But we've got to set our clock to God's time zone is what we've got to do and not ask for the opposite to happen, that God would set himself to ours. God does work with us where we're at, but we need to be in sync with the heart of God. We need to set our clocks to his way or his time. And Peter says, talks about perishing, that those who have not done this will perish. And we can pretty easily understand what it is to perish. If you buy bananas and you don't eat them, what happens? They perish, right, on your counter. Uh, this doesn't happen at our house. They get eaten so fast, but that's what happens. But if you, if you follow Peter's argument a little further to understand this, this perishing and the coming to salvation and the repentance that he's talking about, we could actually uh, uh, state a question that Peter's really asking out of this, which is not simply what does it mean to perish, like I just asked, but what happens if something that's unholy approaches that which is holy? What happens then? That's really what Peter is answering for us. When the holy and the unholy meet. And we actually have, uh, you know, there's some cultural cues that people already have on how to understand that with people's fascination with things like vampires and werewolves and those kinds of things, right? Uh, people making the sign of the cross when something uh, is evil comes to them or something, or that si or holy water, you know, that, that you throw that on something that's profane and it'll melt away like the wicked witch of the West, right? We can understand holiness and unholiness, even in cultural terms that way. They're out there for us to understand. That's exactly the idea, actually. I'm not saying make the sign of the cross and those things. I'm saying that's what happens, though. When the unholy meets the holy, one is not going to survive that interaction. 
It's that which is unholy. It's going to perish. It will no longer exist. And so Peter tells us that repentance is what's called for to avoid that from happening. Because we're either going in a holy or an unholy direction, is what he's telling us. We're either going towards God who is holy, or we're going away from God. But when that final day of the Lord comes, that which is not going towards God is going to be those are the things that perish along the way. Repentance is what's needed to take what you have and turn it in a Godward direction. If we're perishing without God, then we have to recognize that again to the good works piece, there's not enough good that we can do to bank up in our spiritual bank account that will offset the rot of sin. You just can't do it. It will perish without being saved from that and from ourselves in that way. But if it is by God's grace that we are saved, which is the argument of Scripture, which is how it works, that we are made holy by God's grace, then something more than our good works are required. Something outside of ourselves in order to save us. So if we put the pieces together of what we're saying here so far, what we should recognize is that from the beginning what God created was good, His creation. You and me and everything in the world. He called it good, proclaimed it that way from the very beginning. But sin's effect on that which is good is to pervert it. So sometimes in a sinful world, we recognize good for what it is, good. But all too often, every part of of our world has been affected by sin. And all too often, we sometimes call a bad thing good and a good thing bad. And we live in this conflicted world where that's the case. So on the one hand, we can live in a world where we say all life has inherent value. And on the other hand, we can have a couple of countries in Europe that now say we're going to be Down syndrome free because they've aborted children that have Down syndrome, right? But at the same time, uphold that we feel life is inherently valuable. Well, do we or don't we? Right? So sometimes we call a good thing good. Sometimes we call a bad thing good. The second instance is calling a bad thing good, by the way. Sin messes up God's good picture and takes that which was intended to be holy and right with him and makes it unholy. And you can see if you look at 2 Peter 3.11, you can see God's action in salvation. It says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And we'll complete the first half of the sentence here. It says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. God's action in salvation in in making this happen, is that God is making his good creation holy, that which repents and turns towards him, that which is allowed to be saved by by the effort of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you read about the fire coming to destroy, let's recognize that it obviously isn't destroying everything. It's destroying that which doesn't measure up, and that's holy or that's good in this case. So if you and I are going to make it, how is that going to happen? Well, the first step we already talked about is setting our clock to God's time zone. And and part of that is repentance, turning. The second thing I would say, if we go to verse 14, Peter kind of sums up some of what he's saying. And we could say the second thing of how this happens, which is, he says, So then, dear brothers, or dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make the new heaven and the new earth is what you're looking forward to. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So it's not simply setting our clocks to God's time zone. It's not simply repenting to ask for that forgiveness and to turn away from everything that opposes God, sin. But it's also to actively invest 
in God's glory now. It's a twofold thing, not just to turn away, but to turn towards and live into God's way. See, God is holy and wants you to be holy too, and that process can start now. So we need to seek God in God's presence. There are two uh, thoughts I had as we talk about God's glory, combined with this idea of holiness, combined with us being God's glory as his people, that I think come out of the text, and that is to recognize two uh, characteristics of who God is. Uh, that come out of this text clearly. One is that God is the creator. If we're going to invest in God's holiness, we need to understand God's glory. We've got to understand who God is. Let's understand that God is our creator. There is no one, no one who knows you better than God does. There's, there's no one you're married to, you're related to, you're friends with. Not even you know yourself better than God knows you. God created. But the question that comes out of this is, do I trust the counsel of the Lord? Do I actually trust that God knows me and cares about me and loves me and wants my best? And one of the ways that we evidence that uh, is that we, we live into the promises that Scripture gives. So when Jesus says something like, give and it will come back to you, do we believe that, in fact, if we begin to give, not that we're going to get a three-car garage, this isn't health and wealth stuff here, but that God will take care of us? that our daily bread will be met? Do we believe that something can transition in the process of following that too? Not simply that we give, but that we could transition and become someone who is generous by living into the promises that were given through Scripture. Or the contrary could happen, that if we withhold, we become greedy. Do we believe when Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven, that not only in the action of, of living under the authority of God's word and the promises, that, that not only will we be able to forgive somebody even when it's really difficult, but that we might be transformed into somebody who is gracious as God is gracious. We become holy through the process of living under God's counsel. God is our creator, knows us better than we know ourselves. Do we trust God's counsel? Second, God is a patient Savior. Boy, do we need this word sometimes, right? God is a patient Savior. Holiness takes training. And the question is, are you willing to allow God to be patient as he makes you holy? Are you willing to be patient with God? Excuse me, not to have God be patient. It's written well here. Are you willing to be patient as God forms you into a holy creation? We'll go with the written word. The, the trick is, some sacrifice is required if we're going to be made holy. Probably more than we think. Uh, in 2 Peter 3.1, he reminded us, look, I'm, I'm trying to remind you to stimulate you to have wholesome thinking. That is to take all that you have and aim it in a Godward direction. To trust the counsel of the Lord, like we're saying. To, to be patient as God forms you into somebody who's holy. The people that Peter's writing to are going through a time of persecution. It's very difficult. Plus, they have naysayers within their congregation who are saying, well, things are going wrong and Jesus hasn't returned. Maybe God's promises aren't really good. Maybe they're not bona fide, whatever it is. There's some sacrifice required if we're going to follow uh, Jesus and be made holy in the process. And sometimes as church people, it's easy to get a little too cozy and forget that sometimes. So we live into our first world problems uh, too easily and think that a sacrifice that we're called upon is 
a big sacrifice when it's small. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm a person who could eat cereal for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, and pizza for dinner for the rest of my life, and I would be perfectly happy. Thank you for that. I would perhaps change what kind of cereal, sandwich, and pizza, but I would be happy with those three things for the rest of my life. And if, th- if you think I'm, I'm just putting you on, talk to my wife later, she'll tell you, yep, he could. So the thing is, in that desire for pizza, uh, we've talked about Christmas traditions and things like that since we're at that time of year. And every year I think to myself, man, I'd love to have pizza on Christmas Eve as our Christmas Eve tradition. But then I remember I'm a pastor. So, so I'm busy on Christmas Eve usually. This is not an ask for pizza. Nobody took it that way. Um, and it seems like, oh man, that'd be such a great tradition. What a first world problem, right? I mean, these are silly things. But when you get into uh, sacrifices that we might be uh, asked to make, uh, Stephanie and I, our family, we've decided that we are, are going to be generous. And so we give and we give and we try and give in a sacrificial way not just a nice way. We've decided as a family that where God calls, we go. And so we've moved a number of times. And it's costly to move, isn't it? It's not only does your stuff break, not only does it cost to get you know, new licenses and things like that, but the new friendships and schools and all the other stuff you have to do, it's costly, but we've decided that's part of the price of admission to the path of holiness. God, what you call us to do, we're going to do. It will cost us something to walk that path of holiness, but submission to God's will will shape us into being God's holy people. And the final truth we ought to recognize is that Jesus will return. Jesus will return in glory. The day of the Lord will come. And sometimes we're struck with the question of, why not today, Jesus? This would be a great day. You know, for some of us, we wake up and we're going to go to, the, to work and we think, you know, today would be a really good day, Jesus, for you to come back because I don't want to go there or school or wherever it is. Why not today? But, but more deeper than that, we ask the question, why does evil still persist? Why do such bad things still happen? Why do we turn on the news and we see these terrible things continuing to go on and, and it doesn't seem to matter the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked? Why does this stuff still keep going on? But then if you look at 2 Peter 3, this will be a sobering passage for us. 9 told us that God is not slow in keeping his promise, although as one of my professors pointed out, it seems sometimes like it's a photo finish with God. But in verse 12, it's talked about in verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and what? And speed its coming. So if you think of the rate at which God is coming back, and you think about what holds God back from coming, he doesn't want any to perish. I'm not saying who will and won't in that. He doesn't want any to perish. That's his intent and his goal. But what keeps Jesus from coming back? It's our own stubbornness, our own sinfulness, and our own unholiness. It's not God saying, I don't want to come back. It's God saying, I want everybody to come to holiness. So he puts it on his holy people to send out the message and say, will you bring people in? Will you become my holy people and bring others in to become my holy people? You see, we're God's people. We're supposed to be made holy, so we'll reveal God's glory and bring others in. And that very final verse in verse 15, it says, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. 
God's patience is what allows us to walk this path of holiness, to be saved from the powers of evil and from sin in this world and to bring others in, to be formed into his holy people now. Let's pray and let's thank God for this. Father, in our haste, sometimes we forget about your timing. In our absorption in the things that uh, we are so comfortable in in this life and that we take for granted, in our first world problems, sometimes we forget what the path of holiness looks like. Not only that you've called us to this path of holiness, but that you've called us to draw others into this holiness. God, may your grace indeed be irresistible to us. May we be drawn into your presence today. And for uh, as we sit here and think about ways that we uh, are unholy, parts of us that just seem far removed from you, God, will you help us repent? Turn those towards you. In fact, uh, as we sit here, may we just ask for forgiveness where we need forgiveness, where we've turned from you. Father, challenge us to live into your holiness, not simply to uh, say, I'm saved and so it is, but to become your holy people. To understand that you are our creator, the lover of our soul. That you are the patient God who has saved us. May we live into that reality today to become your holy people, revealing your glory to those around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.